0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in American Studies. I'm Stephen Hausman, your host for today's podcast. I'm talking today with Jeremy Malloy, a Social Science and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow at the Frost Center for Canadian and Indigenous Studies at Trent University. We're here to discuss his new book, Blood, Sweat, and Fear, Violence at Work in the North American Auto Industry, 1960 to 1980, which was published this year by the University of British Columbia Press. Jeremy, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Steve. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's my pleasure. Uh, first, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to be a historian in the first place?
1: Oh, okay. I guess uh, I became a historian because uh, my dad's a historian. It's kind of like pro wrestling. Like you grow up in the business and you don't really know what else to do. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's, it's your 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 father doesn't have a normal nine to five job. He's he's home all the time. You know. So this is what you get into. You you, you don't. I don't understand the straight world. Uh, no, seriously, uh, the reason I became a historian was because uh, I uh, left undergraduate studies for a time. And when I came back, I took a course uh, in Canadian working labor and working class history with Joan Sangster, uh, who's uh, actually a uh, director of the Frost Center right now and has a long time been a mentor to me. And when, while I was out of the academy... Uh, I, you know, have worked a lot of various, uh, you know, service level menial jobs uh, that didn't pay very well that had odd or interesting or uh, uh, work cultures that I was really curious about. And when I, you know, came back to university, I didn't certainly intend to be a historian. I was taking a variety of courses, kind of trying to figure out what where my interests were. And this course in working class history, like it, it, it opened a lot of doors for me intellectually and started to answer a lot of questions I had about why the workplaces I worked in were the way they were, how work had mattered in people's lives, how work had shaped people and, and their ideas about what their lives could be or, or weren't and, and how they might go about changing them. And that, that the workplace was this you know, really crucial vector of, of experience and identity uh, for, for human beings. So I, I got really excited about, uh, you know, studying the history of the workplace uh, and uh, I've, I've been doing that ever since. Now, you know, when I started studying the workplace that like, so we're talking about like 2005, um, it was not exactly a boom times in the labor history industry. Right. Um, I was told a lot of times, uh, over the years that, you know, labor history or labor studies, uh, was not kind of where the action was. And, and the scholarship was moving away from questions about work and questions, especially about what happened at the point of production. And, you know, uh, this was true when I did my undergrad. I did work on hotel workers during my master's uh, when I did work on fast food organizing um, and during my PhD. And, you know, people would tell me this and I would, you know, I was hopeful. I, I, I understood where they were, you know, talking about. And I certainly was cognizant enough of, of where trends in, in academic publishing and, and research were going to know that these people had a point. Uh, But I also, as I said, was really passionate that that the study of work and work under capitalism was really crucial for people who live in a capitalist society like we do. And that since so much of our time, uh, to quote Cliché, but a true one is spent at work. It is an enormously uh, important factor in producing our identity and producing how we respond to the world. So I just kept being hopeful that you know the pendulum would swing back and and that labor and 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 labor studies would uh, become more important and more kind of central to academic inquiry, and uh, you know like uh, we had the 2008 recession and and you know still didn't quite happen. We had Occupy Wall Street. Uh, you know now we have the election of of Donald Trump on a very kind of. Platform that relied heavily on racism and misogyny, but also about uh, an appeal to ideals of protectionism and a a long ago kind of American political economy that no longer exists. And you know, it still hasn't quite happened, but I am starting to see uh, a lot of you know exciting new scholarship coming up with a labor focus. So I think that it is a a particularly good time to be discussing these issues. And I bring this up uh, simply because you asked why uh, I ended up doing this particular project, I believe, and. The reason why is because I thought that uh, I well, I wanted to, my goal was to understand and explain violence in the workplace historically because nobody had really done that before. Uh, there have been some good work on workplace violence, um, but much of it was very present-focused. Uh, Mark Ames's book on workplace violence was a big inspiration to my own thinking, but it mostly covers the 80s and 90s, and I was interested in kind of taking the analysis back further to, to deepen the historicizing of the argument. So that was my primary objective, to understand and explain how workplace violence uh, worked historically. But my secondary purpose was I wanted to create something that was engaging and that would get people talking and thinking about what happens on the job uh, and people who might not normally be interested in, in in labor studies. For example, folks on violence, which is a burgeoning uh, area of academic inquiry, I thought hadn't really integrated a focus on labor and violence of the violence of capitalism into their analysis. And I thought just violence and is such a um, important topic that uh, studying the kind of intersection of work and violence would would. Uh, provide kind of a, a a new slant on labor history, uh, an, an era, you know, kind of re-energizing a historiographical question about labor and violence that a lot of people may have uh, kind of abandoned, which we can get into later, but also get more people discussing uh, work and what happens on the job. So that was a very long answer to uh, <laughs> your very straightforward question.
0: That's OK. That's what we want. So, yeah, I, my next question was to kind of go a little bit more specific uh, into the genesis of this book. Um, you touched on that somewhat, but what drew mm-hmm. you specifically to um, this particular context, to the auto industry in, um, on the border of Canada and the United States? What drew you to that particular area?
1: Okay, well, this work started out as, uh, as my dissertation research, and, and like a lot of doctoral students, I had like really grandiose uh, and, and beautiful dreams of what the project was going to look like. And, uh, you know, I am a, a historian who works in a comparative framework. I, I do believe it's really uh, important to understand the role that national and local contexts play in determining the structure of people's lives. Uh, and, uh, so I wanted to do a comparative approach here. I wanted to understand, uh, how, you know, I was, I was influenced by people like Ellen Neeson's Wood, who pointed out that although you we, know, we do live in a globalized world, national structures are really important and they're very important to how capitalism reproduces itself. Uh, to illustrate that, we only need to see how capital moves from place to place across the planet in order to better, uh, you know, achieve profitability. A, com- a plant would not move from Detroit to Bangladesh if it wasn't economically profitable and thus if there wasn't differences in those two national contexts that made it worthwhile, right? So I, I, I you know, wanted to study uh, workplaces in both countries to understand violence and I wanted to understand to explore a wide variety of uh, workplaces, because as a labor historian and someone who had previously done work on hotels and fast food restaurants, uh, I've been pretty um, vehement that, you know, another direction labor history needs to go is to really self-consciously expand beyond uh, you know, the kind of manufacturing um, inquiry, you know, the manufacturing sector where we've done so much of our work, you know, possibly because it's really heavily unionized and also because it's really heavily important. So I wanted to do manufacturing, but also uh, service work and uh, maybe like office work in two different countries. So I was going to do uh, Vancouver and Seattle and Toronto and and uh, I believe it was Toronto and New York originally or Toronto and Chicago. So obviously this was super ambitious for a doctoral thesis. That's a, three industries in two countries. Uh, I, I definitely was also interested in, in including the post office. Uh, obviously workplace violence becomes a recognized social problem after the going postal shootings in the 1980s. Um, and so I was interested in, you know, Ames points out in his book that before those postal shootings, the United States Postal Service had undergone a really, uh, contentious and exploitative uh, reorganization of the work process that he argues contributed to the, uh, you know, the rash of postal shootings that happened in the 80s. And I was interested that, by that argument, but I wanted to test it by comparison with the Canadian example, because here in Canada, we also had quite a lot of uh, conflict between the employer, a.k.a. the federal government, and, uh, and the postal workers during the 1970s uh, with, uh, you know, uh, the postal workers union leader being jailed on occasions and just really contentious labor uh, labor fights throughout the 1970s. yet in the 1980s, Canada did not experience anywhere near the same level of individual postal worker violence. So I wanted to kind of understand that. That seemed like a very good comparative space for comparison. But once I really started digging into my actual research, one I realized that you know I wanted to finish my PhD sometime during the 21st century. And secondly, I wanted to I realized there was so much in auto. Uh, that, that to do any industry justice, I should really focus on one and, and to, you know, to do auto justice, I would have to focus on it. And it gave me such a wonderful basis for comparisons. You know, uh, auto was you arguably the most important industry in North America during the sixties and seventies. I think that you can make a fair argument. That was the most important industry. Number two, uh, I was able, thus, to make kind of apples and apples comparisons across the border because in both Detroit and Windsor, there are Chrysler plants operating. So you have the same employer. And in both Detroit and Windsor, they're represented by the workers there are represented by the United Auto Workers. So you have the same, you know, you have branches of the same international union. So that really allowed me to kind of isolate the national context and the local context in a way I couldn't say if I was comparing, you know, uh, an accounting firm in Cleveland with an, a different accounting firm in uh, Toronto and they both weren't unionized. Uh, so that kind of, uh, was why I ended up choosing auto and that's why I ended up going with a, with a comparative framework with Detroit and Windsor here.
0: So let's get into the book a little bit and uh, let's sure. let's start with um, the context that you were just talking about. Tell us a little bit about the cities of Detroit and Windsor in the 1950s and 60s and into the 1970s and particularly about the place of the automobile industry in these places and how the contexts were similar and how they were different in this time period.
1: Uh, well, they're both auto towns. Absolutely. Uh, I'm sure most of your listeners will be familiar with Detroit being the motor city, but Windsor, which is, uh, you know, just across the river from Detroit uh, in southwestern Ontario is also has been historically very much an automotive manufacturing city as well. And kind of grew up around that kind of regional uh, rust belt manufacturing economy uh, in the 1950s. Uh, both of them had stable union representation uh, you know, the big organizing battles of the 1930s and 40s were over. And here is where I want to kind of raise, I think, an important historiographical point that my book is making and, and why I believe the book is uh, hopefully represents a, a kind of necessary new direction in, in labor historiography. It's pretty much um, kind of has been settled wisdom in, in North American labor historiography that uh, obviously in terms of labor violence, there were massive strike violence in the late 19th century and early 20th century and things, you know, uh uh, clashes like homestead and in the early 20th century and you know, the Cold wars, things like that. Uh, and then, you know, the kind of the way the, norm, the story normally gets told is, you know, there's, there's massive fights over organizing in the 20s and 30s, you know, especially, you know, uh, during, in auto, absolutely, uh, with you know the Battle of the Overpass and other things like that. But then after in the United States, the Wagner Act and in both countries, the kind of institutionalized um, kind of taming of the labor movement, the rapprochement between labor and capital, you know, represented by PC-1003 in Canada and the Treaty of Detroit in the United States, that, that, that kind of violence goes out of the North American labor process and it becomes very rationalized and very bureaucratic and what my book tries to argue is uh, that violence doesn't actually leave the North American labor process in the 1950s uh, and towards the you know all the way up until the end of the 20th century violence changes and uh, so I just want uh, our listeners to keep that in the back of their mind as, as we continue to unfold this story so by the 1950s yes uh, you know the, both these employers have uh, sort both these uh, cities have, An auto industry, although, uh, as Tom Segura has pointed out in his work, the auto industry is already starting to leave Detroit by the 1950s. And um, they're very much dependent, both towns, on the auto industry for continued employment. Uh, A major difference between the two cities is in terms of their racial politics. Now, I want to be very specific and clear on this for our listeners. Uh, Both societies are definitely white supremacist societies. Uh, they are societies of racial hierarchy where white people are at the top. And there's a lot of racism directed towards people of color. However, um, these are more keenly felt and they are more impactful in the Detroit context simply because of uh, the history of Detroit and uh, the uh, greater preponderance of African-Americans in Detroit uh, compared to African Canadians in Windsor. Now by the fifties and especially by the 1960s, um, African-Americans are being hired at Chrysler in greater numbers Uh, in the fifties and sixties. Uh, hiring for African-Americans in winter's auto industry is a lot slower. So uh, there's a lot of exclusion that happens in Canada's industry in that time period. Whereas in the United States in the 1960s, what happens is you see Detroit uh, at Chrysler hiring African-American workers, um, young African-American males primarily, but they're being hired and they're receiving uh poor treatment less uh, and less benefits and poor conditions, especially than the previous generation of workers had uh, had enjoyed. Now, the reason why this is, is because in the 1960s, uh, especially the late 1960s, where we noticed the violence really starting to pick up in Detroit plants, uh, there is a brief uh, manufacturing boom uh, that's very much connected to uh, the Vietnam War. Now, Chrysler's in an interesting and difficult position because of this boom in the late 1960s in Detroit. It's under a lot of pressure to make up as much profit as it can in the late 60s uh, to, to compete not only with GM and Ford, but to compete increasingly with foreign automakers uh, from Japan and Germany. However, it's got very limited means by which to do this. Chrysler's always been undercapitalized compared to the big three, so the primary way that it can make money in this late '60s boom is to pump out as many cars as possible in the, you know, the what remains of its decaying Detroit factories. I mean, Dodge Main, the main factory I talk about, was an eight-floor behemoth built in 1914 and is really on its last legs by the late '60s. And the way they do this is push this new generation of workers. Uh, mostly black workers as hard as possible without adequate safety, without adequate respect for workers' spirits, workers' capacities. And so you get this, uh, you know, huge increase in the intensity of work, uh, you know, overtime becoming mandatory and just uh, a number of, you know, just constant hideous accidents and deaths occurring on the shop floor. And this is a process that, that black radical workers refer to as niggermation. In Windsor, um, jobs were, uh, you know, and I should bring up one more thing. The UAW in Detroit is, is not effectively responding to this number one, because of racism in the UAW, I believe makes a lot of the leadership kind of, uh, Blind to the issues that black workers are bringing up because they don't have enough black workers do not have enough power within the 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 UAW locals in Detroit at the time. And secondly, because the union feels pressure to acquiesce to what Chrysler is is pushing through because I believe they're worried about the plants closing down, whereas in Windsor, uh, thanks to the Canada U.S. auto pact negotiated in 1965. There's a certain amount of auto production guaranteed to stay in Canada as a um, as a precondition to U.S. autos being sold in Canada without import duties. So the America, the Canadian Union, uh, you know, while it also has um, technically more solidarity or an easier way to apply solidarity because of its history of racial exclusion and the kind of nationalist orientation it can have, it also is not as worried about losing the plants as the American uh, locals are because it knows, thanks to the auto pact, uh, they're – Um, they're going to keep a a certain amount of jobs in Windsor no matter what. So they are able to push a little harder for better conditions, and Chrysler isn't able to uh, speed up the process of production as much in Windsor as it is in Detroit. So that's the kind of situation that we have in the mid to late 1960s when the, the amount of violence in the plants really starts to increase, especially in Detroit.
0: Let's talk about the concept of violence um, that that's mm-hmm. so central to your book. How do you conceive of and define violence in blood, sweat, and fear? And how? What are the various ways that violence manifests itself within Dodge Main and within the Windsor auto factories as well?
1: Hey, well, in terms of uh, how I define violence, the what I was always most interested in uh, as a historian. I mean, I, I suppose I often. I had a pretty wide lens in considering what was violent or uh, what can be considered as violent happening in these plants. Um, although my primary focus is on physical violence. But what I was always kept kind of central uh, in mind was that the definition of violence itself was a point of contention between workers, between uh, the union, between The employer and in more notable cases of workplace violence, uh, you know, in the media and the courts itself, Uh, all of these uh, stakeholders kind of argued about what violence was at work, at the work and what it meant and what to do about it, which was something I thought was really important for me to recover and, and really important for me to highlight. So I was always interested in, you know, the definition of violence as a source of struggle. You know, workers struggled over this. In the introduction, I point out uh, a workplace uh, leaflet that says something like, and I'm paraphrasing, that, you know, why is it that when a worker hits their boss with a crowbar that's conceived of as violence and it makes the news – uh, but you know when a worker is sucked into the machinery and killed, or has a heart attack on the line because of, you know safety is not uh, anywhere up to standards in in our workplace, that is not considered violence, right? These types of questions are really important in these workplaces, and they're being voiced uh, by auto workers on both sides of the border. In terms of the way violence manifested itself, uh, you know, there's harassment, there's intimidation, uh, there is um, beatings, assaults. Uh, sexual assaults, uh, homicides, and uh, that wider violence, as I spoke of, of of the working conditions and exposures that that workers are are dealing with. I mean, even at Dodge, Maine, at one point, 23 workers come down with tuberculosis in the early 1970s. The UAW issues a report in the early 70s that argues in every year of the Vietnam War, More auto workers are killed or injured on the job each year than the corresponding number of Americans killed or injured in Vietnam. So they're making a very clear kind of uh, analogy there as to, you know, where is the real killing fields in America, basically. And I also noticed violence flowed in many different directions. Violence flowed in between co-workers, you know, from more powerful co-workers to less, from less powerful co-workers to more. It flowed between co-worker and su- between worker and supervisor and between supervisor and worker. It obviously flowed primarily, I would argue, from the labor process itself. Uh, and it, it happened uh, internally in the union. Uh, there was there was violence committed by law enforcement and plant guards and violence directed at law enforcement and plant guards in the plant. Uh, and there was violence that happened outside of the plant that was related to in plant dynamics at bars or in parking lots or uh, as part of, uh, you know, union political campaigns, for example. So I quickly realized as I re- as I was researching the book that, that violence was a multi- took a multiplicity of forms, uh, was used in a multiplicity of ways, sometimes in contradictory ways and flowed in, 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 in a multiple directions and therefore. That's how I was able to conclude that you know, violence wasn't an aberration or uh, you know something that just happened occasionally or the product of a few bad apples. Violence was really fundamental to the labor process and the work culture of both uh, of plants, of Chrysler plants in Detroit and in Windsor.
0: Tell us a little more about, as, as you just put it, about the work culture within these two plants. I particularly appreciated your discussion of masculinity in these plants. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Uh, sure. Sure. Um, I guess I should – I guess I'll focus my discussion here uh, on the Windsor Plants because that's where I was primarily investigating masculinity. And the Windsor Plants were more heavily masculine than the uh, than the Detroit Plants. Uh, the Windsor Plants, for example, did not hire women until the mid-1970s in, when they were basically ordered to by the Canadian government as a result of getting some funding and uh you know those plants were were very heavily uh you know stereotypically rough masculine culture type places like the kind of places that um Steve Myers written about in in his uh in his work and the, and Wayne Luchak, who uh, made the important argument that as far back as the 20s Ford uh like Henry Ford opted to provide a kind of boys club atmosphere for his male workers in order to get them to uh, you know, handle the monotony of the job and kind of offer kind of psychological compensation for that. You know, I think you still see some of those dynamics, uh, pretty, pretty clearly in the, in the Windsor workplaces of the seventies. And, uh, there was, a, there was a, a, a culture of roughness and machismo. And I, and I want to point out that this is, uh, you know, a culture. It was something that's constructed and built by people over time. And I think it's really important that, uh, We do not fall prey to the easy kind of stereotype of essentializing working class men as violent or as rough, but that this was learned, you know, behavior as part of a larger workplace culture. And it was a workplace culture that, you know, exposed workers to danger and demanded, you know, great physical uh, exploits of them on a regular basis. So thus, I would argue encouraged uh, you know, a kind of hyper-masculine culture among the people who worked there. But, you know, workers were also, you know, young male workers were also hazed, uh, you know, to see if they could take it or if they could snap. And, you know, everyone talks about this kind of environment in the 70s where you got people in biker jackets, like working on the floor, like showing their colors and everyone working with cigarettes clamped in between their teeth and, and you know, smoke and, and people walking around with no shirts on, really oiled up. And, Uh, you know, even to Jim Monk, who, who talks about, you know, kind of a homoeroticism that, that existed on the floor between, uh, between auto workers. Uh, and Monk himself, uh, is an interesting figure because he, uh, you know, he was an openly gay auto worker in the late seventies and he was able to carve out, you know, which could have been a very dangerous situation for him. Um, but he was able to, you know, maintain respect and autonomy and, and acceptance in the workplace. In part because he was such a physically imposing man and and like a very experienced wrestler, so I think he was able to leverage his own claim towards masculinity against you know maybe this, the, the the traditional um, stereotypes and prejudices that were were leveraged against uh, gay men in those times. And of course, then for this this could be a very unwelcoming and harsh environment for the early female auto workers who who entered the plant. Um, I interviewed Pat Cunningham, a female auto worker, you know, who talked about uh you know being harassed by coworkers, having pornographic magazines shoved in her face, having being having cars drive up in front of her house and back while she was sitting on the porch after work and the kind of uh you know, struggles that she had to um uh she had to uh, undergo to uh you know fight back against this harassment and intimidation and violence at work.
0: Shifting gears a little bit, um, you talked a lot, and and really a, an important part of the story that you tell are unions and la- labor organizations, um, and you say in the book that there's, there was a feeling among workers, especially among black workers, that their health and safety was not a priority for their union, they felt. Um, mm-hmm. Why did some workers view, uh, view the UAW that way, and then how did they respond in kind?
1: Well, I mean... I don't know if you've heard this before, Steve, but the uh, the classic uh, kind of sardonic line that a lot of black workers had about the UAW in the 60s and 70s was UAW means you ain't white. And um, I think a lot of workers in the 60s and 70s believed that uh, the United Auto Workers was not, you know, especially in an on-the-ground point of production level, particularly concerned with with what black workers were dealing with. And, you know, this is obviously a contrast to what the UAW was putting forward at a national level, you know, you have things like Mar- Walter Ruther marching with, uh, with uh, Martin Luther King, and, and you had black workers, you know, later attack the UAW by saying you marched in Selma, but you never marched in Detroit, you know, to do something about the conditions African Americans were experiencing there. And and you know of course at this point we have to talk about the the major contextual event in Detroit uh, you know the uprising of nineteen sixty seven which we're marking the fiftieth anniversary of it is an enormous uh, you know galvanizing event that happens right at the beginning of my study uh well in the middle of my study but like right before the violence is about to spark and you know I had informers you know I was fortunate to interview General Baker who was one of the leaders of the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement, which we'll get to in a sec as, as one way that black workers responded. After the 67 uprising, he, he told me that, uh, you know, bluntly that the black workers who marched back into the plant weren't the ones who walked out and that they weren't going to take uh, the same kind of treatment that they used to take. So you have, you know, a UAW that in Detroit is is under pressure, is worried about the plants leaving, is not very representative of the workforce racially and is, is not very effective or concerned about plant level safety issues. I mean, Ruther in the sixties admitted that they had made progress on wages and working conditions, but they never fixed working conditions for a lot of workers. So, you know, and, and there's a lot of, 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 frustration with leaders in the late sixties and, and, workers do black workers do try to form organizations. I think that we are going to be more effective, uh, in, in advancing the interests of black workers and, uh, you know, make Chrysler and the UAW accountable in a way that they hadn't been earlier. And also, uh, you know, in the minds of some, take black power at the point of production and use it to achieve black re- liberation or black revolution generally. So you have, uh, you know, some of the major formations of the black power movement uh, happening in Detroit, uh, specifically, as I just mentioned, the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement, which started at Dodge, Maine, and, and you know, expanded to other plants around the city, and also, uh, you know, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. So these groups themselves also, uh, you know, were, were, would push the UAW and push Chrysler on plant conditions, racism and harassment at work, uh, you know, racism in society generally. And they also would adopt this kind of hypermasculine image. Uh, you know, they would they would talk about workplace violence uh, in their in their leaflets. And, and I argue that drum is not just is, is very influenced and informed by the violence they see around them in their response to plant conditions. So what they see and what General Baker told me is that there was a violent incident in the plant, they would try to use that as propaganda, use it to organize around. And so you see them in the plant literature, celebrating instances of violence, celebrating, uh, when, um, you know, when, when workers beat up bosses and, and, and adopting this hyper-masculine identity to kind of grab the attention and scare the UAW and Chrysler. The most notable, uh, example of this is, in 1970 when the auto worker james johnson uh who was not affiliated with drum kills uh three people at the alden avenue plant they go back in the next day or within the week and they're at plant gates handing out flyers that say james johnson needed a thompson which meant that you know james johnson should have had a machine gun so that he could have killed more people and you know i was uh Fortunate enough to be able to speak at the African-American, the Wright Museum of African-American History in Detroit a couple weeks ago. And one of the workers who was handing out the flyers that day uh, was was there. And he spoke to me about it and, and how trepidatious he obviously felt handing out those flyers at the plant, knowing that, um, you know, he might be handling them to one of the deceased's friends or family who worked at that plant. Now, so this approach did work. Uh, you know, the drums leveraging of violence certainly attracted attention. It, it got them audiences and uh, and attention, and uh, that they would not have gotten otherwise. And, and but as I also argue, it it also alienated a lot of people, uh, a lot of female workers, a lot of older workers in the plant who were not really enthusiastic about the pro about you know when a supervisor got stabbed. They didn't think this was a great thing to celebrate. Maybe uh, drum did not you know that kind of hyper masculine, hyper violent kind of uh, presentation did not go over well with all uh, their coworkers
0: how did management and the UAW and workers respond to both, um, the more radical labor elements like drum that you talk about within the company and to the violence more generally in the plants.
1: Okay. Um, drum itself experienced a lot of, uh, I mean, they, they did have, uh, I believe like informal channels of, of communication open with Chrysler. Uh, but they also experienced a lot of of repression as well. Um, so a lot of drum activists were fired, blacklisted. And uh, while at the same time, you know, Chrysler did talk with them in back channels and, and they did start to incorporate some of drum's critiques or at least give the impression they were responding to drum's critiques. So they did things like hire more black foremen you know, and discourage racism among white supervisors and things like that. So it was an interesting mix of kind of response and repression. The UAW, uh, you know, we see Ed Liska, Whose, whose diaries I quote quite extensively, he's the president of Local 3 during this time, and he's he's, he's a white uh, unionist, and he's pretty unsympathetic or kind of unaware of what um, what Drum's critiques are. And he just looks at Drum and he just sees black militants. And he, sees, he, he doesn't have a lot of time or a lot of sympathy or a lot of understanding of what the issues they're organizing around are and how they are affecting black workers in the plant. And, you know, how Drum is talking about real issues other than 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 just than just militancy and violence. So, you know, he works to fight drum politically. And there's a lot of, you know, very contested union elections um, that are settled with, you know, uh, in part violence. You know, there's a lot of talk. And I'm I I speak to in the book and I'm not able to get anything, anything specific because there's so many. Contested uh, narratives about what happened, but you know, there's definitely allegations of, uh, you know, people being beaten around election time and elections being stolen. And, and, you know, General Baker again, uh, was standing with a Detroit housing activist one day and they're, you know, they were in an office and a bullet came through the window and the Detroit housing activist was paralyzed. And Baker told me that he was later told that, uh, the UAW had been, uh, you know, behind that. Um and you know that's I'm only passing on what I heard there, but that gives you an impression of some of the kind of uh you know uh narratives that were out there about about the u a w s relationship with drum in terms of the windsor plants uh there was more cooptation uh you know the 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 leadership was able to more effectively head off a radical challenge without resorting to violence. Uh, and the leadership was, was, uh, I would argue, um, yeah, able to better kind of co-opt resistance in a productive ways, uh, than the, than the, uh, American leadership was in terms of what employers did. there, like, there were definitely radical challenges, although I don't believe that employers, uh, did too much about them in the Windsor context. I want to focus just to close here on the fact that neither the Windsor-Chrysler plants nor the Detroit-Chrysler plants, and neither the Windsor-Chrysler unions nor the Detroit-Chrysler unions, you know, I've talked about how they responded to radicalism and and political challenge and, and, you know, organizing on the shop floor, but none of them really thought of workplace violence as a problem, full stop. There wasn't, you know, I mean, there... Don't get me wrong, they were obviously concerned about how much violence was happening in the plants. This was a very big deal. But they didn't have the same kind of conception of workplace violence as a discrete social problem in and of itself that we would later come to have in the 80s and 90s. Does that, does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah. they're not saying like, oh, what are we going to do about all this workplace violence? I mean, they are saying, hey, six people got stabbed in the paint shop last week. But they're, they're, there's not like a, a separate uh, understanding of workplace violence. That comes later. So we'll we'll just keep that on the back burner for now.
0: How aware was the public about what was going on in these factories prior to the 1970s?
1: That's a, that's an excellent question. As as I say, there there's not uh, you know uh, a, a societal knowledge about workplace violence. There's not workplace violence policies up in 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 every office and and factory like there are now. And and there's the public and there's the public. You know, uh, one of the dynamics of this study uh, that I I wish I had been able to expand upon more. And I I really uh, hope that other labor historians, uh, you know, begin to consider this dynamic more fully is kind of connecting what happened on the shop floor to what happened in the home. Um, You know, there's certainly some hints about workers bringing home the violence of the plant in terms of family violence or in terms of addiction Um, that that I'm able to kind of, I'm able to kind of bring those voices out a couple times in the book, but I, I didn't have the time or the research base to really study what kind of the, uh, how the violence leaked out of the plant and how violence in the communities, you know, came into the plant, which is also something I discuss a little bit. Um, so, you know, for, uh, in terms of the public, I, I would imagine an auto worker's friends and family might have a much greater understanding and awareness of, of violence at work than, say, the public at large did. In terms of the public at large, though, uh, certainly workplace violence was a major issue in both communities during the 1970s. And I traced that in my work through an examination of a few uh, criminal cases that came out of workplace violence that attracted widespread attention in uh, across the United States and, and in definitely in Windsor. And so those cases would be, as I mentioned previously, James Johnson's murder of two supervisors and a coworker in 1970 after, uh, you know, a lot of racist mistreatment throughout his life and especially at Chrysler uh, that was, uh, you know, capped off in a suspension he believed was a dismissal. Johnson, after that time, you know, goes home and and shoots, you know, gets a gun, comes back to the plant and kills three people. Uh, the uh, second case is the shooting uh, attempted murder of uh, Billy Harrell by uh, David Mundy, who was a um, – David Mundy was an official with uh, Ford local um, – 600 in Dearborn and uh, Billy Harrell was a skilled trades worker. And they were in the middle of a, a, di- a dispute about a union contract. And in fact, when the skilled trades workers voted down that contract it was the first time that a UAW contract had been rejected by the ranking file. So uh, that balance took place in the context of a major union dispute in the early seventies. And finally uh, the only up to that point, president of Windsor's Chrysler auto workers union, local four, 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 Charlie Brooks, was murdered by uh, an auto worker, Clarence Talbot, who had been fired and was, uh, you know, upset with the union over the way his grievance had been handled. Um, So uh, I look at those three cases in my fifth chapter to explore um, how exactly – Workplace violence was understood when it went beyond the factory and became a major public issue and how courts and the media and the public, uh, you know, defined violence and how they understood it and who they thought was responsible and what they thought they might do about it. So, you know, as I said, since there was no kind of idea of, well, there's workplace violence. Like nobody really looks at this case. Very few people look at these cases and say, well, how much violence is going on at, the, at work? You know, I mean, it, it never gets kind of the dots don't get connected like that until the 1980s. But they are really important cases that galvanize their communities and, and there's a lot of uh, struggle and, and conflict and publicity over these three cases.
0: Um, and that leads me nicely to my last big question that I have for you. And you call the 1980s the age of workplace violence in the book. What did you mean by this? And how, um, how was workplace violence described in media accounts in the 18 excuse me, the 1980s and 1990s? Talk about the change that you, that you described there.
1: Okay. um, I think it's called the age of workplace violence because I called it that because that is the age in which workplace violence, you know, becomes uh, solved as a, you know, named and and defined as a social problem that we have experts about and expertise, um, you know, the same way we have problems like, you know, juvenile delinquency or public obesity that, you know, you, you could argue have you know, been around in some form or another for a long, long time before they were defined as problems in their particular historical moment. But because of a convergence of factors, uh, you know, they get named, and there's a body of expertise and, and a push for solutions. And, and in, the, in North America, that's the 1980s. So I basically argue that, obviously, you know, my book I think demonstrates quite well that that violence at work had been going on for a very long time before the 1980s, and the factors that lead there to be a uh, you know a definition of the problem and an awareness of the problem i think are number one definitely that there's these mass shootings and and i think it's important to to note in an age where mass shootings are such a prevalent problem is that the first place they become kind of operational as a as a ongoing, regular, tragic feature of North American life is in workplace settings. And so this really contributes to the, the concept of workplace violence, the concept of going postal. And thus, uh, and, and I'm, I'm also wondering, um, you know, based on conversations I've had with, uh, you know, people like David Goldberg, who's, uh, you know, historian of, of Detroit and historian of, of African American work and politics, um, that whether it's not true that it's also notable in the 1980s because the problem becomes visibly white and the problem uh, is classed as an individual problem because in the 1980s we see, uh, you know, white shooters being put forward. Whereas, um, you know, when there's, when there's a case like the James Johnson case, James Johnson is defined not as an individual, but as a kind of, uh, you know, by many as a larger signifier of, you know, kind of black fury in Detroit, for example, whereas, the the preponderance of white shooters in the 1980s leads people maybe to define it as an individual problem. And I, I do, I think this de- definition of workplace violence as an individual problem is, which is how it's defined in the 1980s, is both revealing and misleading. Number one, I do think it's revealing because, you know, I mentioned uh, a little while ago, that, you know, the settled historiography is that workplace violence disappears from uh, from the point of production from labor relations in North America after the after the 40s. Right. Well, my book argues, though, is that it doesn't go away. Workplace violence mutates. And in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s, the way violence, the, you know, the dominant paradigm of workplace violence Mutates into individual violence, whereas in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, you see certainly there's individual violence in those eras, but the dominant paradigm is of mass violence for a mass age, right? The, the violence of modernity, of, of, of clashes in the streets between the agents of the state and Pinkertons and the agents of capital versus you know striking workers, be they railroad workers or miners, what have you. And in the sixties and seventies and eighties, as befitting a much more individualized age in which class, I would argue, is experienced much more individually by working people. The predominant paradigm of violence becomes individual. You know, I was always really struck by there's there was a Florida law, um, you know, a take your gun to work law. I believe I mentioned early in the first chapter where some of the arguments for this law, which proposed to allow people to bring a gun to work and, you know, it's the present day law and keep it in their glove compartment while they were on the job. The argument was that people needed these guns at work so that they could protect themselves from their coworkers. You know, where in the early twentieth century and late nineteenth century, the, the reason for bringing a gun to work would predominantly be be to protect yourself from the police or to protect yourself from you know your boss's army. So in that sense, people who defined workplace violence as individual in the nineteen eighties were were kind of very much reflective and correct in terms of that. Seemed to be the tenor that individual violence was taking. You know, violence was being committed by individuals in individualized ways, but I also want to point out that the the conclusions that were drawn from this, I think, were often erroneous, which were that they very heavily psychologized workplace violence, so that workplace violence was about the maladaptation of certain personalities to the workplace environment. And to, to understand workplace violence, many, many people at the time argued and still do argue, you had to understand who was likely who had the personality profile or the makeup to quote snap right who the lone wolf was all of these types of things which are still really active in our discourse today and and my my book argues quite strongly based on the historical understanding uh, that i gained from researching uh detroit and windsor chrysler plants that workplace factors in the labor process uh you know and the distribution of power in the workplace things like that all play an enormous role in increasing what I call the risk environment for workplace violence. So, you know, I can't, I can't explain why any one person would commit uh, an act of violence in the workplace, but I can, uh, I believe, understand what the risk factors are that make it more likely that people will choose violent uh, solutions in a workplace environment. You know, the reason there was so much violence at Detroit Chrysler plants in the late 1960s and early 1970s, the, the explanation isn't, chrysler hired a bunch of bad people it's that uh you know chrysler and the uaw and workers created an environment uh and predominantly chrysler because they had the overwhelming amount of control to to shape that environment created an environment uh of of stress and fear and hostility uh that made it much more likely that individual workers would choose a violent response to a specific situation so uh you know in the in the 80s and 90s we do uh predominantly define it as individually although i will point out there's an interesting wrinkle in the canadian understanding of violence at work which here it grows out of an understanding of another issue that's becoming much more prominent in canada in the 1980s which is the understanding of the social issue of violence against women and we're you know um because of the response to things like the 1989 montreal massacre and uh the murder of uh, a nurse named Laurie DuPont years later in Ontario, unions responding to violence in the workplace are very much connecting it to uh, violence against women, um, which is a, you know, a really important um, means of understanding it because um, violence against women, uh, especially, especially uh, domestic violence is, is a very key uh, vector of violence in the workplace. Uh, also, sexual harassment, sexual assault. And also, um, as somebody pointed out in uh, a, a very good author meets critics panel that I was fortunate to be a part of at uh, Social Science History Association in Montreal last week, these stories would change. My story would change if I was to investigate. Uh, violence at work in a predominantly female workplace. Uh, the, the kinds of violence used by female employees and towards female workers would also, in fact, be different. So that that, that is an important gender difference in the way that it was responded to in Canada uh, versus the way the problem was defined and understood in the United States.
0: So now that the book is out, do you have an idea for a next project that you're interested in? Any idea where you may go next in your research?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm working on that project right now. Um, You know, and it it flows very much directly from my experiences uh, that I had researching this book. So I mentioned briefly that I was struck by the amount of addiction that was brought home by workers. And, you know, noticing how much alcohol and drug abuse uh, was prevalent in these workplaces it made me start to under try to understand the historical relationship between addiction and the workplace in North America. So my current project is a historical investigation of addiction in the workplace in Canada, and the U S from the sixties through the nineties. And, and I'm both hoping to understand how, uh, you know, the workplace shaped drug use, but also how it shaped recovery in terms of the development of employee assistance programs, drug testing, and how, um, how you know a lot of our definitions of things like addiction and recovery very much are dependent on workplace uh workplace policies and uh and the ideas of you know employment and what's important for business and i think again that allows us to try to understand what working class experience what work experience is like um you know from among working class people among middle class people what role it plays in the lives of people in an increasingly individualized age um because you know, after the 1960s and 1970s, a lot of the traditional bulwarks of working class identity kind of break down, right? This is the argument that, this, for example, Jefferson Cowie's making in *Staying Alive*. That you know, manufacturing employment, this kind of hegemonic white male working class culture, all these things are breaking down. Um, which I think scholars have done a very good job of understanding. But what we're still trying to understand, and I think this is a productive uh, direction for labor history and labor studies to go down, is. In a postmodern neoliberal age, how is class understood and how are people uh, struggling over class? Uh, What kind of new fights and new solidarities uh, exist? And I think for me, addiction is one of those ways in which we see class struggle happening in a very individualized way, for example, in the struggle over drug testing or the questions over what it means to be a workaholic and whether that is a, a positive or a negative development. And, uh, you know, for example, the, the creation of employee assistance programs, which on the one hand, uh, offer help, uh, and, uh, counseling to people who really need it, but also are this kind of new connection between the employer and the employee's intimate private life. That is, uh, you know, very unprecedented in many respects. So I'm by, Exploring this new project, I'm hoping to better understand uh, that connection between addiction and the workplace. and I'm also hoping to, in a wider sense, understand this kind of individual uh, experiences of class and the new solidarities and new oppositions that exist uh, for working people since the 1970s.
0: Well, I look forward to reading that. Um, Jeremy, thank you for joining us today. I really uh, enjoyed reading the book. and It's a very powerful book and a powerful argument. So thanks again for coming on the New Books Network.
1: Uh, Thanks very much. I just want to point out uh, that it's available from UBC press in Canada and also for uh, your American listeners. It's uh, being uh, distributed in America and published by the University of Illinois press. So you can take a look on their website if you're interested in getting a copy. Thanks again for having me.
0: Yeah, of course. Jeremy Malloy is a postdoctoral fellow at Trent University. His new book, Blood, Sweat, and Fear, Violence at Work in the North American Auto Industry, 1960 to 1980, is just out with University of British Columbia Press and, as you just pointed out, with the University of Illinois Press as well. Thanks again, Jeremy. Thank you.